Well, good to see everybody. It's nice to have the nice chairs again. This is a good step forward. Those, those of you in Zoom land can't see, but we've got our nice cushy chairs back. We're not uh, stuck in these temporary things. So anyway, kind of nice. I was at an airport, I think it was Newark, uh, on some journey to and from Israel, and I went by, I think it was a Starbucks, and you know, they always ask you your name to put on your cup, and so I said, you know, my name's Wayne, and so I get my cup back, and it's, it was spelled W-I-N-E, <laughs> wine, <clears throat> and so I said it out loud, wine, wine, and I thought, okay. I probably said it with some kind of a southern accent. What's your name? Name's Wine. So they're in, in Newark, it must sound like wine. So that's, that's what I got. And I've obviously never forgotten that. And every time I go through any kind of a service thing I'm, uh, like that, and when they ask your name, I'm always very careful to say it, Wayne, so that they'll write it right. Well, Sometimes that doesn't work, and I've noticed with all the efficiency even that Chick-fil-A has, that, that sometimes that slows things down, because Wayne is, I guess, not a very common name, and some of the folks just don't know what to do with it. It's come out as Greg, you know, when I get to the window, and it, it's like, yeah, I guess my order's for Greg, when they read it. So you can start calling me Bob if you work for Chick-fil-A, because whenever I go through Chick-fil-A now and they ask, uh, what's the name, I just say Bob, because I figure you can't mess that up. It's very simple. You can spell it right. You don't have to ask me how to spell Bob. It's very simple, and when I get there, Bob works. My effort is not in any way to be deceiving. It's to help things move along to let there be efficiency, and if anybody is efficient these days, it's the Chick-fil-A drive-thru. I was reading about a line of COVID vaccinations where cars were lined up, and it was like backed up for like half a mile or something, and the, uh, the arranger of that was struggling with how to get cars to move quickly through. Well, this was like happening right across the street from a Chick-fil-A, and the Chick-fil-A manager walks out and says, you mind if I help you? guy says, no, I don't mind at all. In like 15 minutes, the guy had the whole thing rearranged and cars were moving through like clockwork. We love efficiency, don't we? And we appreciate it when it's done well. We expect it, especially if we're paying for it. Like fast food, we expect to be fast. We expect fine dining to be fine. We expect that our movie that cost us 10 bucks with $11 popcorn is going to be worth the the $21 investment of our two hours in front of the screen. We kind of expect that when we do unto others that they're going to want to do the same to us. We we expect that church is going to be out at 12 o'clock. I don't know what chapter that's in in the Bible, but for some reason that is very important. Life is full of expectations. We carry them with us, and we each have different sets of expectations, don't we? And when those expectations aren't met, especially when we've paid for them to be met a certain way, we sort of feel justified in our disappointment. And in some cases, we feel justified in our anger because we expected it to be a certain way. 
Well, this is also true in our walk with God, though we don't really want to admit it. It's true. We followed Christ with expectations. There is a reason we said yes to following Jesus Christ. It wasn't that uh, we just sort of followed blindly. If, we, if there wasn't something in it for us, we wouldn't have said yes. We have expectations, and sometimes these expectations aren't met. And when they aren't met, well, in our walk with Christ, sometimes we feel disappointment and, honestly, anger. We're not alone in that, uh, in that feeling. If you look back in the ministry of Jesus, people had expectations of Jesus as well. And if you have noticed, Jesus failed most of those expectations. He, uh, his parents misunderstood him. We see that very clearly. They didn't understand uh, his statement, you know, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? I'm not sure I understand that either. His leaders thought he was possessed. His family thought he was crazy. His hometown found him offensive. And even John the Baptist had doubts. So Jesus disappointed pretty much everybody he met. Why did he do that? Jesus was committed to disappointing everybody he needed to if that meant doing the will of the Father. Let's look together at the book of Mark. Book of Mark, chapter 1. We're continuing in our series where we do a single message from each book of the Bible. And you may remember, but we've done a lot of messages from the book of Mark. In fact, we did a whole series on this gospel a couple years back. And so uh, there's not a verse we're going to read today that we haven't already read, and in some sense, principles that we haven't already talked through. So instead of just kind of rehashing one of those messages, I thought, wouldn't it be good to look at, look at Mark at a different way? And that is, rather than to look at just a specific passage, to kind of survey a section of it to get the big flow of what Mark is teaching in there, because it is extremely relevant to our walk with Christ, especially our expectations of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 1, let's start down in verse 16, and we'll kind of set the stage there. Mark 1, 16, As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending their nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Now this isn't the first time if we would compare all the Gospels, this isn't the first time that uh, Jesus has encountered these men. It sort of seems strange when we just read Mark. It, this you know, itinerant preacher walks up to these guys who are busy working, all of a sudden they drop their nets and leave. That seems kind of crazy. Well, this wasn't the first time they'd, they'd met. But nevertheless, we see that they immediately stopped what they were doing and followed. Why did they follow Jesus? They followed Jesus because they had expectations. There's no other reason we ever follow Jesus except that we expect something from doing so. 
we expect that something's going to happen as a result of our following Christ or of our following God. Notice what Jesus said was going to happen. In verse 17, he says, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, make you doesn't mean I will force you. It means I will cause you to become. And the word become implies a process. So Jesus says, you follow me as you are right now, and I will change you. I will take you from where you are to where I want you to be. I will take you from being a fisherman to being a fisher of people. Now, Christ was pretty plain there. Your goal is to become one who seeks for others, to be strategic in the life of others. This was his metaphor. But interestingly, they may have thought, you know, that sounds pretty good. But this wasn't the only expectation they had of following Jesus. There was more. Not that Jesus mentioned, but that they brought into the deal. How do we know that? Because the, the book of Mark tells us, as we get into it, we'll see. Jesus had a plan, and the disciples had their own plan. So, from there, turn, if you would, to chapter 8. Mark 8. We're going to start at verse 17, but the first part of Mark 8, just to kind of summarize it, Jesus performs a miracle. He multiplies the bread, and they had seven baskets full left over, but somehow... They get into the boat here in uh, verse 14. They get into the boat there, and they only have one loaf of bread and 13 men, which is proof positive that men planned this trip. There wasn't enough to eat. Jesus tells them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and the disciples are thinking, he means, oh, let's be careful about buying bread. And Jesus says, no, I'm not talking about bread. Look at verse 17. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Now look at these questions. Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, Twelve. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? They said seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? So the context here is he's setting this up. You can almost hear the frustration here in Jesus' voice, these rapid-fire questions. Don't you see? Don't you, don't you hear? Don't you have a, do you have a hardened, hardened heart? How many baskets here? Answer. How many baskets here? Answer. Don't you understand? There's this sense in which Jesus is saying, I can take care of the bread, guys. I've proved that twice. What I want you to be really careful of is the teaching of the Pharisees. And then he asks this question, don't you see? Having eyes, don't you see? Don't you understand? So this is the question that's kind of mulling over, at least that Mark wants it to be mulling over in our minds, as we get to verse 22. Verse 22, And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought, they brought a blind man 
to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Now pause there for a second. Why would that be something that would perk our uh, ears? Or maybe we could say cause our eyes to widen if we're thinking about seeing. Because Jesus had just asked them, don't you see? And then they bring to Jesus a blind man. So Mark is making a connection here. Verse 23, taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village and after spitting on his eyes, imagine that, and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men for I see them like trees walking around. Then Jesus, then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village, meaning don't spread this around because I'm, I'm not here to heal people. So see the question? Jesus asked them in the boat, don't you see? Don't you get it? And Bethsaida, they bring a blind man to him. And Jesus asked the blind man the same question. Do you see anything? So Mark intends that we connect this, this lesson together, these two examples together, and the blind man's answer is very telling. He says, it's blurry. I see, but not clearly. Jesus touches him again, now he can see clearly. So it's not that Jesus, you know, was kind of off that day. Usually, I get this right on the first try, (laughs) gosh. No, he was teaching his disciples something. And we know that because of the very next verse. Verse 27 Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do the people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. So now Jesus is asking, uh, Who do people say that I am? And the disciples' answer is, is basically what our world today says when people are asked who Jesus is. Great man, great teacher, but just a man. Each of these answers says nothing about him being Christ, nothing about the Son of God, nothing about the fact that he's God in the flesh. It's all about just some great teacher or some great prophet of old, but they're wrong about Christ. And so Jesus says, verse 29, he continued by questioning them, but who do you And the emphasis in the original language is on that word. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Interesting. Just like he had just told the blind man who was healed, don't even enter the village. Don't say a word. Which is weird, isn't it? Why, they finally get it, does Jesus say, Don't tell anybody. Yes, I'm the Christ. That's great. Don't tell anybody I'm the Christ. I thought that was the whole point. Why would he say that? Because Jesus is making a connection that the blind man that he healed and the disciples' understanding or the disciples' sight is very similar. That the disciples are at a point now in their relationship with Jesus where they see blurry. They don't see clearly. They see blurry. And so blurry is not the time that you share a message because you're going to share half the message. To them, Jesus was the Christ, absolutely. 
How did they define that? They defined that as a political deliverer, one who's going to deliver Israel from Rome, and really one who's going to enable these disciples to sit in the kingdom of God on 12 thrones. This is what the Christ meant to them. And so Jesus says, don't tell anybody I'm the Christ, because if you do, you're going to give them a half-baked cake at this point. Um, I need to take you to Caesarea Philippi, basically, he does, and then say, I need to clear the fog a little bit. And he does. And then notice the next verse, verse 31, and he began to teach them. So this is the first time he's teaching them this that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. See, Peter clearly understood what Jesus was saying, and this didn't jive with Peter's understanding of the Christ. And so Peter takes him aside and says, you know, Lord, I've, uh, I've read the Old Testament, and uh, this isn't what happens to the Christ. Well, he hadn't read all the Old Testament, no doubt, because the Old Testament clearly predicted that the Messiah would suffer. In, as if, and in that great Isaiah 53 passage that was mentioned earlier. So you see what Jesus is doing? He's comparing this blind man and his sight, or lack of sight, to the disciples and their lack of insight. He's comparing sight to insight. And the blind man was, had, a, had an encounter with Christ that led, led him initially to only see blurry. This is where the disciples were. So far in their walk with Christ, they saw him blurry. It was accurate, but it wasn't in focus. When Jesus began to bring it in focus... And he introduced the cross to their concept of the Messiah. All of a sudden, it's like, whoa, tap the brakes here, Jesus. Peter pulls him aside. This is not what is going to happen to you. And what Peter really meant was, this is not what I want to happen to me. Because if that happens to you, what does that mean for us? So this is the context the challenge of expectations. They expected that Jesus would bring in the kingdom, and along with that, that they would reign with him. Um, So here's a lesson, the first principle from our text today. And there are three total that we're going to look at as we walk our way through uh, these three chapters. 8, 9, and 10. But the first one is this. The cross reveals our expectations of following Christ. The cross reveals our expectations of following Christ. And we see that from Peter's reaction. When Jesus introduced the cross to the scenario, Peter immediately recoiled And then Jesus, of course, goes on from there to rebuke Peter. Look at verse 33 and following. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. 
And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Again, the principle, the cross reveals our expectations of following Christ. Jesus told them, this is what's going to happen to me, and then he says, now, this is also what's going to happen to you. You also have a cross to bear in this life. Think about your own life for a moment and the cross that God has called you to bear. For each of us, it may be different, and yet for each of us, it's the same in the sense that faithfulness is the answer. Faithfulness and perseverance. To grab that cross, whatever way it is, and to keep dragging it as we walk forward. The cross reveals your expectations because think about the things you pray about. So often, the things we pray about seem to be asking God to remove the cross. The cross that he has given us in our lives, we continually ask him to take it away. Think about Jesus when he was in Gethsemane as he knelt and prayed before the Father and prayed three times that it might be taken away from him. And then he said, but not my will, but yours be done. So praying for your cross to be removed by the example of Christ is an okay thing to pray as long as you add with that, but Lord, if you want me to carry this cross, I will carry it and I will do it obediently. The cross reveals our expectations of following Christ. You know, it's also true as we look at this healing in stages that Jesus uses the cross to give us a clear understanding of himself. Um, Jesus was told, Jesus told Peter, in fact, referred to him as Satan, or that the, the, the source of Peter's uh, uh, words here, that this shall not happen to you, was from Satan. And Jesus said, you're saying this because you're setting your mind not on God's interests, but man's. When we set our minds and our passions and our pursuits on man's interests or on our personal interests, often it's not God's. God's interests are in a different direction. And so the cross reveals our expectations, but it also reveals, it can reveal, if we will embrace our cross, it will reveal the truth, give us greater clarity about Jesus. Because remember, the disciples, they were foggy about Jesus until he mentioned the cross. And Christ's intention is for that to bring clarity. It's the same in our lives. When we reject the difficult things that God's put in our path, our understanding of Jesus stays foggy. When we embrace the difficult things that, that he puts in our path, more, clearer and clearer become our understanding of Jesus. We don't like that, but that's, that's the truth. Man's interest versus God's interests. The cross reveals our expectations. Um, I like how uh, 
animals, or dogs, I should say, not just animals, do cats know their names? They do? A, a, a cat can respond to, it, to its name? Does anyone have a cat and, and can answer that? They do. They do. Okay. I didn't know that. That's, to me, that's not common knowledge, but uh, I'm, I'm glad to know that cats are, are that way. Dogs certainly are that way. We, we know that's true about dogs. Um, dogs hear their name. They know their name. In fact, that's about all they know when you're talking to them. It's just kind of blah, 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 you know, ginger, blah, 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 ginger. And you can be saying, Ginger, why'd you get in the trash? Ginger, don't you ever get in the trash? And all they ever hear is blah, 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 Ginger. We can be that way in our walk with Christ, too, especially as we're reading the Bible and we run across things, you know, like uh, God will meet all your needs in, in Christ Jesus. Amen. I hear it. Love your enemies as yourself. What? Carry your cross, uh, take up your cross and follow me. Blah, 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 Wayne. Some things we just don't hear. It's kind of like wives, when you're trying to talk to your husband, and in the middle of a sentence, he interrupts you and says, Touchdown! Well, he's not paying attention to you. He's watching the television. We can be so focused on our own needs or our own perception of our needs, like the disciples. What are we going to do? We don't have any bread. Jesus comes and says, I can take care of the bread business, but I want you to make sure that you're keeping your mind on God's interest. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. Their expectation of the Messiah was totally different, and it's the same way with us. The cross reveals our expectation. So let's look in chapter 9 and just glance down the first few verses there. You see the event that takes place right after this? It's the transfiguration. You ever wonder what the transfiguration was for? Was it kind of like Jesus just needed to you know, get out of the house for a minute and just be himself? No, the transfiguration had a very specific purpose. Uh, Matthew makes this a little clearer when he says that there are some of you standing here today uh, that will see the, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What he is basically doing is giving them hope. He has just introduced the, at the end of chapter 8 that the Messiah, the great glorious king, is going to die. Oh, and also rise again, but they didn't hear that part. And so the transfiguration, they're up at Caesarea Philippi, the huge mountain that's right there. In fact, Caesarea Philippi is in the foothills of Mount Hermon, the large, highest mountain in Israel even today. There's snow on it, you know, all year round. Jesus probably goes up to Mount Hermon here and reveals his true glory to these disciples. Why? Would he do that? Because he had just revealed that he's about to die. These were disciples who their dreams were, were sort of in a tailspin. And Jesus brings them back into focus by saying, I am the glorious king that you think I am. This is the future. This is where we're headed. But in the meantime, I'm going to die. In fact, 
if we were to look on uh, through the various gospels that talk about this, uh, Mark talks about it, Matthew talks about it, Luke talks about it. They mention the fact that Jesus is there talking with Elijah and Moses. Mark doesn't say what they were talking about, but Luke says that they were talking about Jesus' death. There in his glory, he's talking about his death. He's giving hope and encouragement to these disciples who desperately needed it. They needed the encouragement. And so do we. We need to see that this is true, that there is a future. Well, here's the second lesson from the text today. Jesus loves you enough to disappoint you now so that you can experience greater joy in the long term. Jesus loves you enough to disappoint you now so that you can experience greater joy in the long term. Christ was willing to disappoint his disciples. Remember up front, we talked about the fact that Jesus disappointed pretty much everybody, his parents, his leaders, um, the disciples for sure, and he disappoints us. Not because he's mean, but because he's loving and he is wanting or willing to disappoint us now toward our immature longings or our blurry, you might say our blurry longings, our blurry vision of Jesus. He's willing to disappoint us in order to give us a greater good. Think about how we did that with our own children. Boy, if we gave our children everything they wanted, they would not grow up to be good people. They would grow up to be horrible people. As we mature in our Christian lives, Jesus is willing to disappoint us as well with wisdom far beyond a parent to the wisdom of a God and a Lord who is willing to disappoint us now, knowing that it's temporary, and to say no to our request to remove the cross so that we can have a greater joy in the future, a greater joy in the resurrection. You see, if Jesus had listened to Peter, Peter takes him aside and rebukes him, Jesus says, oh, yeah, I sure don't want to disappoint you, Peter. Okay, I, I, I won't go to the cross. What would happen? Well, we'd all go to hell. Jesus needed to disappoint them, and he needs to disappoint us. Jesus was willing to go to the cross and die for our sins so that we could be saved, so that there would be good in the long term. The principle holds true in our lives as well. And notice the order of events. Jesus goes to the cross first, then comes the glory. He revealed this to his disciples. I'm going to die, and then he shows them his glory. He reveals it that, in that order, and that's the, the order that it happened in Jesus' life. That's the order that it happens in our lives as well. And in the meantime, we take up a cross. Taking up a cross represents what the Apostle Paul would later call offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. For Jesus, his death on the cross, he was a sacrifice for us, wasn't he? When we take our cross, we are living sacrifices in that, as the Apostle Paul talks about this, as a death to self. And the death to self also happens as we renew our minds. There's so many metaphors throughout the New Testament that talk about uh, growing in the sanctification of our, of our new birth in Jesus. So, 
The transfiguration gives us the hope that there is indeed a future. Well, look here. We're still in chapter 9. Look down at verse 30. And let's look once again. Jesus teaches his disciples about his death. Mark 9.30. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Notice the contrast once again. Jesus is talking about laying down his life and dying, and they are arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Once again, when the cross is mentioned, how did the disciples respond? They push it back and they opt for the kingdom. It was the same in the previous chapter. When Jesus revealed the cross, Peter takes him aside and says, No, that's not the way it's supposed to happen. He pushed back. It's the same thing happening again. Every time the cross is brought out, the disciples push for the kingdom. And here, they're deciding amongst themselves which one of them is the greatest. Or, which, or in Matthew's account, they, they actually ask Jesus, which, which one is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus brings a little boy, which, which is funny. He brings him a little, brings him a little boy and sets a little boy in front of him and said, See this kid? This is an example of the greatest in the kingdom. You imagine those 12 egos sitting around looking at this little child, trying to figure out how in the world does this square with the great expectation that they had of following Jesus. Well, now look at chapter 10, our final chapter. Chapter 10, look down at verse 32. Mark 10, 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, and spit on him, and scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Okay, now pause there. What has the pattern been so far? Jesus introduces the cross. The disciples push back and say, nope, we want greatness. Jesus introduces the cross. The disciples push back and say, nope. We're ready for the kingdom. Third time, Jesus introduces the cross. How did the disciples respond? Look at verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for, do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you were asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? 
They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, that is not, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Matthew tells us that James and John got their mommy to ask Jesus this, that they were just kind of there behind their mommy. And if you compare the Gospels and all the, the, the relationships together, this uh, James and John were Jesus' cousins, most likely, which meant that they were getting their mom or Jesus' aunt to ask the question. They were pulling out the family card, so to speak, And then, of course, the disciples, the other disciples after this, verse 41, hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. They didn't have the family card to pull. James and John were taking advantage of their family relationship, and uh, the others felt indignant about it. Or, in other words, they were jealous. They didn't think of another way to do it themselves. Nepotism really stinks, doesn't it? And uh, this, is, this is what's happening in this context. Jesus had already told the disciples that they would rule in his kingdom, but James and John are here saying, you know, we'd like, if we could, we'd like to have the best seats in the house. Give us the box seats, if you would, in the kingdom of God, as if they're for the asking. And Jesus tells them, he says, look, you... You really don't know what you're asking. For me to sit where I'm going to sit, do you know what's going to have to happen? I'm going to have to drink this cup. And the cup that he mentions here is a reference to his death. In fact, if we were to turn to chapter 14, you don't have to turn there, but if you were to turn to chapter 14, the cup is a clear reference to the new covenant or his death to make it happen. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to suffer terribly and to sit where I'm going to sit. You willing to do that? And they say, oh yeah, sure. Ironically, James was the first martyr of all the apostles, which is sort of amazing that Jesus would invest so much time with Peter, James, and John, and then James, a a mere 10 years into the church, and James is beheaded, the first apostle to die. And ironically, the apostle John, his brother, is the last apostle to die. So you've got these two guys, bookend, the bookends of the, of the death of the apostles. And Jesus says, yep, you're, you're going you're gonna to suffer too. But what you're asking is not mine to give. It's God's sovereignty. The places of service are not something that we choose. It's something that God chooses for us, and we follow. Were they really able? Probably not, at least at this time, because we know that within a week's time as they're up, on their way up to Jerusalem, there in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is arrested, every disciple to a man abandons Jesus and scatters like rabbits to save their own skin. The cross reveals the expectations. What did they expect? We know what they expected because they requested it three times. Every time Jesus brings up the cross, the disciples push back and say, we're ready for the kingdom. Well, here's the third lesson, and it's really more of, a, of an observation. We often follow Christ with mixed motives. 
we often follow Christ with mixed motives. In fact, we may even could say we most often follow him with mixed motives. I remember Dr. Toussaint saying that he doesn't know that he's ever served the Lord with completely pure motives, which is a terribly transparent thing for Dr. Toussaint to say. <laughs> because I remember the first time he heard, I heard him say that, I thought, well, then I know I never do if Dr. Toussaint doesn't. But it's right here in the scripture, isn't it? Even the apostles were following Christ with mixed motives. And you know what? That's, I want to say that's okay, but what choice do you have? If you've got to wait until your motives are absolutely pure, first of all, how do you know when they are? Then you probably won't ever serve. Go ahead and serve the Lord. Do your best to do it with pure motives, but realize that we often serve the Lord with mixed motives. It's very possible that the disciples were doing the very best they knew how at this point. They were seeing Jesus still blurry, and it would take the cross to, uh, to bring clarity and the resurrection. Boy, don't you know they saw the Lord Jesus in a whole new light after his resurrection? Talk about clarity. It took the cross to bring that clarity, and it does often in our lives as well. The fires that the Lord has put you through, think about those in your life. How has God used that to bring clarity in your walk with Christ. He has used those fires probably more than anything else to bring clarity. There's clarity in the word, but there's clarity in the word mixed with the application of the challenges of life. It was this way with the disciples as well. Well, moving on. James and John ask for the best seats in the house, and Jesus responds. He says, you don't know what you're asking. The ten feel indignant. And verse 42, look at this wonderful application. Jesus, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Now, pause just here for a second and remember the evening news you watched last night. Let me read those verses again. You know that those who are recognized as rulers... Leaders of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. This is the way the world operates, Jesus says. Just look at the evening news, or the evening bad news, I like to call it, is because power and authority is, is the way our world works. Verse 43, but it is not this way. And in the original language, that is very emphatic. Not this way among you, but, strong contrast, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. See, now Jesus takes it even further, and he doesn't merely say that he will be killed, but he says why he will be killed. He will be killed as a ransom for many. Jesus is not merely our model of how to live life, but he is our sacrifice. He died as, our, as a payment for our sins. He's telling him, look, guys, you're, you got the wrong model for greatness, you're looking at the world for greatness. You want to be great? Don't be like the world. Be like me. 
be a servant. The way up is down, Jesus says. And it's not that way in our world, and we can see that very clearly, can't we? Well, as we move on and look at this final little chapter, I mean this final little section of this chapter, right after that they come to Jericho, and we won't read all the verses here, but you're familiar with the story. They come to a blind man named Bartimaeus. Now, because we're surveying this, our ears perk up, or our eyes wide, or become wide when we see blind man. Blind man, ding, ding, ding. That takes us back where? To chapter 8. And we think about, we're immediately hyperlinked in our mind back to chapter 8. What was the lesson back in chapter 8? It didn't see clearly. They needed Jesus to reveal it. The cross reveals that, brings clarity. False expectations of what it is to follow Jesus. All of that is wrapped up in the metaphor of the blind man. And we see that emphasized through the next chapters. Uh, Jesus reveals the cross. They push back three times. So now we've got a blind man again. So now you've got blind men who basically bookend these lessons. These three times Jesus has pointed to the cross and the three times the disciples have pushed back and opted for greatness. So this blind man is very important for our application. Look at verse 47. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many who were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up, he's calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus, and answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. And then the triumphal entry. Then Jesus begins his Passion Week. So this is sort of the, the apex of Mark's gospel. And if we, since we've looked at it in a survey with these two blind men bookending Jesus trying to teach his disciples, we see that this blind man is, in essence, the, the example of who the disciples should have been. The disciples had been asking for glory. Bartimaeus asked Christ for mercy. And I hope you notice there in verse 36, Jesus asked the disciples, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 51 Jesus asked Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Same question, but two totally different answers. The disciples wanted glory. Bartimaeus wanted mercy. And this is our response as well. We're calling the lesson today really a, a question, you might say. What is it that you expect of God? Because we all have expectations of God, don't we, when we follow him? As we've surveyed these chapters in this section of Mark, we've seen very clearly that our expectation of Jesus is mixed. We want to do what's right. We want to follow him for his glory. But so often we follow him with mixed motives. And the great thing is Jesus lets them follow him with mixed motives because he knows, as he said at the very beginning, follow me and I will make you become. It is a process of growth. 
Jesus didn't say, follow me if you think you can get it right. He says, follow me and I will do the work of making you who I want you to be. What the disciples didn't like is that that took the cross. What you and I don't like is that it takes the cross in our lives as well. A cross that we take up daily and follow him. You know, it's really an encouraging message because it tells us that we don't have to have completely pure motives to follow Christ, to be effective for Christ, for him to allow us to come after him and to then for him to turn and use us in powerful ways. But it is a challenge for us to, to reorient those motives, to say, you know what? Boy, I've been praying a lot that God would make me great. Lord, I've been praying way too much that you take this cross away when you have consistently said no for years. Maybe it's your will that I just carry it and try to be faithful. The disciples followed Christ with mixed motives, and we do the same. Thankfully, his grace makes that okay. Pray, pray with me. Our Father, thank you that you sent your son Jesus and called these disciples that we often look at as bumbling and incompetent. And yet, these are people who knew the word. These were men and women who loved you and followed you the best they could with their limited understanding, just like us. You introduced into their lives situations that gave them greater and greater clarity about them, about you, and about what you're calling them to do. We are no different. So as we take this text today and apply it to our lives and to the cross that we bear, help us to do it. Help us to apply it in a way that renews our passion to do so rather than to wallow in the despair that when is my life finally going to become all that God wants it to be? Father, it could be that we are exactly where you want us to be. We just need to reorient our minds that we are carrying a cross and that we are dragging it all the way to the Mount of Transfiguration, to that final day of glory when Jesus rules and reigns on this earth. We look forward to that day. In the meantime, Lord, give us strength. Give us a renewed encouragement that you've not forgotten us, that you love us, that you have a purpose. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.